From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm at me producer, Jeremiah Freeman, recording on my iPhone in my garage since the Ami studio is closed for the time being. Healthcare professionals have seen the effects of the pandemic firsthand every day, with records climbing and hospitals not getting the necessary tools they need to help sick patients, one can only wonder what it's like to be on those front lines. In this episode, we're going to hear from Dr. Danny Mindlin, who is an ER doctor at the Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage. Though he doesn't speak for the hospital, he's glad to talk about what it's like to be a doctor during the pandemic. At Me Senior Producer Quinn White spoke with Dr. Mindlin about what it was like in the early days of the pandemic, how they're dealing with many shortages of doctors and supplies, and the stresses about being a medical professional right now. They spoke over Zoom on December 14th, 2020. walk me through a day in the life of a doctor during the pandemic and what if anything has stuck out to you you know early on um what happened was really a dramatic drop off in er volume so especially in alaska people were really really good about you know staying at home and it was back in the days of flattening the curve um everyone really took that seriously um and we we really i mean i i've talked before about our incredible gratitude for that it really made a huge difference for us um but what we saw was that we really that bought us some time to adapt to how things were changing and you know in the past you would use an n95 mask and then you'd use it once because you had a patient with suspected tb and then it would go in the trash and that was it and that was really that was what we would use n95s for um was like oh this person you know coughed up a little blood and could have tuberculosis um and so we saw this dramatic change where all of a sudden we have daily changing guidelines on what ppe we should be using and every mask you know you wear an n95 and then you put it in a paper bag and you let it sit for a number of days and then you wear it again um and you can wear them five times or maybe it's 10 times we don't really know but we're gonna go with it and then we all of a sudden we're reprocessing masks so there's a special bin you put them in and they get reprocessed um and so the really striking thing has been this day-to-day change in how we're doing things and early on that was really the major stressful factor is like well i know how we were doing this yesterday i think i know how we're doing it today and i have no clue what we're going to be doing tomorrow and, you know, I think as a, as a doctor, that's stressful because the rest of the team is looking to you to know how things are supposed to go and what we're supposed to be doing. And we were all really in the dark. Uh, we really didn't have, and, and this is not a knock on the state or the hospital or anyone else. I mean, this is the state of the situation worldwide. Everyone was doing their best to get the most accurate information out there as quickly as possible, but the information just didn't exist. And where it did exist was of questionable reliability. Um, and that's still to some extent where we are um, in the sense that, you know, the, the ground is still shifting, but A, it has slowed down and B, we've kind of adapted to it. It's still harder to do your job day to day. You know, so many of the complaints that we're seeing are complaints that get you to sort of get you flagged as a positive, um, like a COVID risk. So our, our triage nurses will ask, you know, have you had any cough? Have you had any shortness of breath, sore throat, headaches, body aches, fever, chills? And, you know, somebody who's coming in because they have a kidney infection and they're vomiting is going to flag as positive because they may well have a fever and they're vomiting, even if they know what's going on. And what I realized was I sort of was trying on a case by case basis to make this decision of like, oh, well, do I need to actually wear a gown or is this someone who's just here because of whatever, a kidney infection or what have you? And what I realized is that it's just easier to actually say, no, they flagged positive. I am wearing a gown. I'm wearing an N95 and I'm wearing an N95 all shift anyway but I am just going to treat this as like, if they screen positive, then I treat them as positive until proven otherwise. Um, Because this is, it's become this sort of daily stress of like, 
am I wearing the right PPE? Am I putting it on correctly? Am I taking it off correctly? Now there's a possible impending glove shortage. So I'm only supposed to wear one pair of gloves, not two pairs of gloves like I was last week. Um, and it's sort of the, the constant sort of drumbeat in the background of there's sort of everywhere. The entire ER just sort of feels contaminated and it really shifts sort of the balance between um, the fun and the stress of, of doing the job. Sure. And I'm sure you definitely want to be more safe than sorry. Absolutely. And especially, you know, there's, I mean, first of all, you got to remember that there's staff in the ER who are themselves high risk. I mean, whether that's because of underlying medical conditions or, you know, um, having people at home who are high risk, we have pregnant nurses, pregnant docs, and, you know, all these categories of people who, you know, can't stay home and really are high risk. And anything I do you know, A, I could put myself at risk, but B, I could put them at risk. Beyond which by putting myself at risk, I actually do potentially put them at risk because we're all around each other all the time, right? So if I do something that gets me sick, then I'm potentially gonna get the person next to me sick. And that's sort of the big, you know, you, you hear people saying like, oh, well, you know, if you're high risk, just stay home, you know, or don't, you know, you don't make me wear a mask, you worry about yourself. And it's like, well, guess what? You don't wear a mask. And then you're near me at the store and you get me sick, you know, now I'm going to the ER and I'm getting other healthcare workers sick and I'm diminishing our capacity to, to respond to this. And I'm potentially getting, getting patients sick, the few who are not already there because they think they have COVID or do have COVID. So what do we know about COVID now that we didn't know before? Um, you know, I, uh, we've gotten better at the treatment. And we thought early on that aggressive intubation was sort of the best thing we could do for patients who had low oxygen levels and that, you know, we needed to provide maximal respiratory support. And what we're realizing is increasingly that we, we probably didn't help people as much as we thought we were, um, that it seems like there's actually a lot of benefit to keeping people off a ventilator and, and sort of making the most of the other mechanisms of respiratory support that we have. Um, so things like um, high flow nasal cannula, where we actually give you uh, high flow heated humidified oxygen through your nose. Um, sort of if you picture the, the oxygen devices that you always see people wearing in movies, the little thing under your nose, it's sort of like an amped up version of that. Um, and then sort of a step up from that would be uh, CPAP and BiPAP, which are the sort of positive pressure masks like people with sleep apnea wear at night. Um, actually very, very, basically the same thing. Um, and sort of these steps that let us stave off intubation because once people are intubated, there are a lot of other complications that arise. Vent management is very labor intensive and staff intensive. The patients have to be proned and that takes like, you know, a full team of people to arrange all of the lines and tubes and then roll them onto their stomach and then roll them back a set amount of time later. So there's a lot of other stuff that comes along with intubating someone. It's hardly a set it and forget it kind of thing. Um, and we also realized that, you know, vents are a limited resource. Um, and thus far, we haven't hit the limits of that capacity, but that's not to say that it couldn't still happen. And so any person that I keep off a vent, that keeps that vent available for someone who may really, really need it in the coming days. How is Alaska handling the pandemic compared to the rest of the country? Well, you know, we, we've been helped by a couple of things. I think isolation has really worked in our favor. Um, and the state was aggressive early on about, you know, limiting people coming in and testing at the airport and having quarantine requirements. Now, the quarantine requirements are sort of toothless, right? I mean, it was like, you know, yes, when you arrive, we require you to quarantine for a week and then test again. So you test, quarantine, test. And that's great. It's going to catch a fair number of cases. And that's sort of in line with what the CDC is now recommending, mostly because people weren't adhering to the stricter requirements. But um, but with that being said, I mean, people were free to just ignore those recommendations. Sure. Consequence for not quarantining or not retesting. Um, and that's not a knock on the state. I mean, it's you can't, you know, short of sending the police to people's hotels, I don't know how exactly you're going to force people to do that. Um, but I mean, I, I think people were really conscientious here. And I think people are, you know, aware of the fact that our medical resources are very limited. And so we, you know, we only have what three hospitals in Anchorage, four with four with base, um, and one in the valley. And then, you know, the resources get spread a lot thinner the farther out you go in the state. Um, you know, if you're up on the North Slope, you're really your resources are very, very limited. And I think people were cognizant of that and were really careful. 
And I think a lot of the activities here sort of lend themselves to sort of being socially distanced, right? I mean, uh, you know, certainly over the summer, we would have a lot of people who are out in, in small boats together and stuff. But generally speaking, there's a lot of things you can do that don't require you to be within six feet uh, to still see people. And that's harder in winter. It's still feasible, but it's harder. Um, and so I think we're sort of seeing the effects of that now um, as the case rates bump up. But, but I think we were helped with that. We were also, you know, we were helped by... Uh, for better or worse, or better and worse, there was a, a massive drop in tourism for obvious reasons, and all the cruises were canceled. So we didn't have these influxes of people coming from out of state. Um, that was terrible economically for the state, uh, and it's been really, really hard on a lot of people. Um, but that's usually, you know, tourism is the source of a major bump in our hospital volumes. You know, you have all these people coming through on cruises, and there's a lot of older folks, and it's routine for us to have patients with strokes and heart attacks who come off of cruise ships and are transferred to Anchorage. So not having those patients really did free up some additional capacity for us to deal with COVID patients and sort of, you know, have a little bit more surge capacity. Um, that being said, we were hurt to some extent um, by, um, you know, fishing industry workers coming in, all the seasonal workers that come in to work at, at canneries and work the fisheries. Um, they, the state, again, was, was really aggressive and really thorough in trying to prevent major outbreaks in those settings, not 100% successful, but I would say, you know, that certainly that was not the disaster that it could have been, at least. Yeah, because I remember thinking about it at the beginning of the summer, like all these people are working in like such a close, you know, proximity. Um, it was definitely, it's definitely something to think about. It's like the meatpacking plants is not an industry that lends itself to social distancing. In addition to higher patient counts, what other obstacles um, kind of came about due to COVID-19 and does anything stand in the way of doctors and hospitals? Yeah, I mean, right now, the big thing we're dealing with is, is folks being out of work, uh, being out of the hospital. Um, so, you know, anytime there's a potential exposure, we have to treat that as staff being infected until proven otherwise, because we can't have a doc get exposed and then go into patient rooms for the next week until they become symptomatic and they've been walking around infecting people. So the consequence of that is that people A, are getting infected and B, are having to quarantine. Um, so, you know, you've got the group who are self-isolating because they're infected, and then you've got a whole other group who are quarantining because of possible exposures, and that drastically limits our capacity. Um, and, you know, there's a difference between saying how many hospital beds we have and how many ICUs we have, and saying, well, what's our ability to staff those beds? And what's our ability to, you know, actually have respiratory therapists and ICU nurses and all of the personnel that we need to actually take care of patients? I, I think we don't necessarily have sort of, the, the, the man on the street doesn't necessarily have an in-depth understanding of what ICU care really means. And it, it's very hard to, unless you've been there the words intensive care could not be more appropriate. I mean, the level of staff involvement that a single ICU patient requires is, is remarkable. And these are sort of heroic efforts that are made on a regular basis. And so we, when we lose staff, it drastically impacts our ability to provide intensive care. Something that you said that kind of um, stood out to me is like the staffing shortage, because I know I was uh, reading the other day about how they were making the Alaska Airlines Center into like the emergency um, whatever, like for COVID patients, um, just in case like the hospitals overflowed. And then um, I was reading further and it said, like you said, there's this huge staffing shortage in the state. So what does this staffing shortage mean for Alaska? And um, is there a solution to that? Well, what you've got to realize is that under the best of circumstances, under normal circumstances, we really depend on outside healthcare workers. We, you know, I, I talked a little bit about sort of our, our surge in volume over the summer normally. And you could take our group as an example. We routinely bring in a couple extra doctors over the summer from the lower 48. Um, we have, you know, locum tenens physicians who come up for a few months and work here to help us deal with the bump in volumes. It doesn't make sense to have, you know, extra doctors in the winter. We staff up over the summer. And, and generally speaking, the hospital has to do the same with travel nurses and, and with other staff members. So, 
even in a normal year, it's not as if Alaska necessarily has the capacity to fully staff all of our hospitals. And that's sort of a, that's a feature, not a bug. The problem now is that nowhere can spare docs and nowhere can spare nurses. And it's sort of, I mean, you think about like during the early um, spike in Seattle, you know, we are used to having the ability to send patients to Seattle. If they exceed our ability to provide care in Alaska, that's where they go. Seattle wasn't taking transfers from us because they couldn't handle the patients they already had. Um, and that's not limited to Alaska. You know, I have a, a good friend from residency who works in uh, Hawaii and works in one of the sort of, you know, outlying hospitals in Oahu and said, you know, I, I couldn't transfer patients to the tertiary care center in Honolulu because there was no room. They were just turning down all transfers. They were swamped with COVID patients. And that means this is sort of a, a forgotten impact that, you know, when the hospital is full of COVID patients, what that means is that no one else can get care that they need, right? You have a patient with a spinal cord injury. Is the example that he gave me, you have a patient with a spinal cord injury. They sit in your small hospital with no neurosurgical care indefinitely because there is nowhere for them to go because the big hospital is not accepting transfers. You know, we're delaying all of this routine care. We're, we're delaying preventive care. We're delaying surgeries that are considered elective because they're, they're not emergency surgeries, but that doesn't make them optional. That's, those are not surgeries people are having for fun, right? I mean, an elective surgery might be the removal of a tumor because it doesn't, it's not an emergency, but it certainly yeah, needs to right. happen. Right, right. I mean, I think that patient would probably feel that it's pretty important. Um, and we're, we're pushing all of this stuff off um, because they're just, the system does not have the, the capacity to absorb what's going on right now. And I think Alaska is a microcosm of that. And in, in a lot of ways, those problems are exacerbated because of our, our isolation. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. It kind of sounds like a big chain reaction. So that makes um, that kind of makes um, this small picture make more sense in the big picture. And I appreciate that. So how have you personally been mentally or physically affected by all of this? You know, I think ER docs are used to having to let stresses roll off of them. And we have a certain amount of natural defense because uh, that's our day-to-day -day existence is you are, you know, you might be in a room with someone who's been shot and, and doesn't survive, right? You, you can spend an hour in a trauma room taking care of a critically ill patient who then does not survive. And you walk out of that room and the consequence of your being in that trauma room for an hour is that there are five other patients waiting to be seen and your waiting room is stacking up and you don't get to process that. Um, you instead have to go see the next patient and you, you know what, you have to make that patient feel like they're the only patient there and that you are taking care of them the way you would your family member. And you have to be able to compartmentalize, right? And it's sort of a cliche term, but it's true that the sort of your own trauma that arises from taking care of that patient, whatever degree of it you might have, has to get put aside for you to be able to function in your job. And so all of us, all of us, whether, whether innately or through training kind of have that ability, but I think it has its limits. Um, I think you reach a point where all of a sudden you're like, holy hell, this is way beyond anything that I've had to deal with in the past. And you're sort of, you're trying to deal with the sort of parallel stresses of all the stuff at work and, and you're expected to be a leader at work and you're expected to be up on the data and up on the treatment and the data is coming out day by day. So you're like reading all this stuff about this very situation that makes you so stressed and you can't kind of step back and be like, you know what, I'm not reading anything today. Um, and at the same time, you're sort of worrying about yourself and your family. You know, I have two young kids. Um, my wife's mom lives two doors down from us and is over at our house all the time. And it's sort of been this constant worry of like, well, if she helps us with the kids. My wife and I are both doctors. We're both working full time. You know, and if my mother-in-law helps us with the kids, then are we going to get her sick? Are they going to get her sick? Are we going to get them sick and they're going to get her sick? So um, there's certainly, you know, everyone has gone through personal stresses with this. I don't think there's a person in the world who has not gone through personal stresses with this. And I, and I think in the grand scheme of things, the personal stresses, mine are no different than anyone else's. They're exacerbated by, you know, being around COVID patients each and every day. But I think all of us are aware at this point that we're already around people with COVID each and every day, short of the poor souls who don't believe in COVID. Um, but the rest of us are aware that that's the case. And so, 
I don't know that the personal part of it is so drastically different. I think it was driven home to me in a different way because I was seeing it early on. But, um, you know, in the end, I try to remember that, like, I have a job. My wife has a job. We're healthy. We haven't had anyone get sick. You know, we've, we, we've certainly had our share of stresses that come from this. But I think compared to someone who's spent their life savings building a business and is now watching it fail, I consider myself lucky in that respect. What is the most difficult part about being a doctor right now? Um, I think, honestly, it is the, the level of disinformation that's out there. It is reading sort of about people who are defiantly walking around without masks because they think it makes them enlightened that they're not listening to the mainstream media and they're smarter than everyone else. And they, you know, don't believe that masks work. And it's like, you know what, man, like if you don't believe that masks work, come on over to the hospital. I've got a lot of COVID patients that would love to cough on you. You know, it's, it's the idea that masks don't work is ludicrous to me. If I cough directly on you, do you not want me to cover my mouth? It's right. Like it's just become so deeply politicized that people can't bring themselves to believe in the objectively obvious. And that's really stressful, right? I'm going into work trying to take care of people. I'm going into work putting my family in the way of this thing, right? Because I'm dragging them along with me. And you've got people who are like, you know, this thing isn't real. It's just a way for doctors to make money. They're getting paid tens of thousands of dollars for every COVID patient, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it does sort of make you want to be like, you know what? You think it's not real? Great. You take my job. Go ahead. Because right now, like, I'd be happy to not go into work for a few days. Um, and so I, I, as much as I say, like, I, I think I've got it pretty good. And I think that's true. That doesn't mean that it's not disheartening to hear what people are saying. And I'm really not one to let myself get sucked into Facebook arguments or battle in the comments section. But you read this stuff and this just blatant level of ignorance where everyone thinks they're a medical expert, but are they're spewing just blatantly incorrect information is sad to watch and is, is as I said, is disheartening. Yeah, I agree. I feel the same way when I like get on social media and I see people and yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that because like, it's something we learn when we're like five years old, right? When you cough, you should cover your mouth so you don't spread your germs on other people. And it's nuts how, um, after all this has happened, like people have kind of seemed to forget about that and like, just, you know, like basic respect and it's really yeah and it's somehow become an expression of your views of your political views right that like oh i don't believe in all that it's like even if you don't believe what anthony fauci tells you can you believe what your mother told you and just cover your mouth when you cough like it's it's an extension of the same thing just just wear a mask just wear because you don't know like you know it's not it's not a big ask asking people to wear a mask is just not a big ask Right. If you if you consider that the trade off is potentially saving someone's life, it is staggering to me that this is the hill people are going to die on. I agree. I kind of think it's, uh, you know, um, since like the pandemic started, I just I think it's kind of a fun accessory. You know, I think it's like something that you can make part of your outfit. I have I have like a dozen now. I have so many. <laughs> oh, my wife has gotten very into the mask. There are several masks with cats on them. I will freely admit. Um, can't tell anyone I disclosed that fact. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, my son's got, you know, a construction equipment mask and a Spider-Man mask and uh you know, sort of if, if my three and a half year old can do it, I think probably, you know, the average person in the Facebook comment section can handle it. I agree. I agree. <laughs> so Alaska has been on a pretty dangerous trajectory regarding current COVID positivity rates. So what will happen if these case counts continue to rise? So, you know, it's hard to make predictions right now in terms of what is going to happen just because we're starting vaccinations this week. We are going to see a lag in that, right? Especially because it's going to take a while for the general public to get vaccinated, even to the extent that people are willing to get vaccinated. And so I don't know what the impact of that's going to be, but we're not going to see it for, I would say, months, um, you know, especially with the holiday travel season exacerbating things. And my, my expectation that people are still going to travel, unfortunately. Um, but we are not far from hospitals being overwhelmed, right? The thing is that at the best of times, 
the way our system is designed, hospitals are at about 80% capacity normally. And that leaves us some room to accept a surge. We are typically now running closer to 90% capacity. And you know, we have to bear in mind that a sick COVID patient is in the hospital for weeks. This is not where you come in because you're having some belly pain, you get your gallbladder out and go home the next day. These are people who are in the hospital for two, three weeks and, and then are still very sick afterwards and, and are not able to function at their baseline level. And so we don't have the ability to recover quickly from an increased rate of hospitalizations, which is what we would naturally expect to, inc- to follow from an increased case rate, right? The increased incidence. So what we worry about is that the hospital starts to fill up and just is full. And then we don't know where we put people. We do have the Alaska Airlines Center. Um, there have been questions around how that's gonna get staffed. And I don't entirely know the answer to that. Um, right now it's being used in part as an infusion center um, for uh, one, of the, one of the new, I don't wanna say experimental, but one, this new monoclonal antibody that basically has shown some limited promise in decreasing the rate of severe infection in high-risk patients. We have not thus far had to use it for overflow, but we have certainly hit the point where we have patients sitting in the ER waiting for beds for you know a full day. Um, there was last week, you know, we had a we had three ICU patients sitting in the ER at one point waiting for beds, and that that is not atypical right now. I mean, that's sort of having double digit numbers of patients in the ER waiting for a bed is is unfortunately kind of the normal right now, and it fluctuates day to day. But then you look at the numbers and people say, oh, well, what are we also worried about? The state has this many beds available. And it's like, well, okay, but the hospitals where the six patients are going and where the six patients are getting transferred to, those hospitals do not have that capacity, right? You look at AMC and Providence and capacity is quite limited. You know, I mean, even right now, I checked today and Matsu has five ICU beds available. Right, and you figure 100,000 people live in the valley. It doesn't take that many cases to go from five to zero. Yeah, I know. I was uh, when I was reading the news last week. I was reading about like how the valley struck down like a mask mandate, and now they only have five ICU beds. That's nuts to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know the to me like one of the most meaningful indicators is the um, the test positivity rate, and you sort of. What we look at is, so basically your test positivity rate is just how many positive tests over how many tests performed. Um, And that should be under about 5% if you're testing adequately. Um, And that's sort of a a fairly accepted number um, among public health experts. And so for a while there, New York City, after their big surge was under 1% and was reopening schools and so on. And that's that's seen a bump lately, but under 1% is great in the current setting. You know, last week, the Matsu was pushing 20%. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. So what that tells us is, number one, uh, a whole buttload of people are getting sick. And number two, we're actually not keeping pace by testing aggressively. Because you can either, you can, it's, it's a fraction, right? So you can make the numerator smaller or the denominator bigger. So if the number of tests goes up, or the number of positives goes up, excuse me, in order to keep that rate low, in order to keep the positivity rate low, you have to do more testing to keep up with the increased prevalence in the community. The more people have it, the more you have to test to keep below 5%. And we haven't been able to do that. And I don't think it's because there's been a drop in testing. There has clearly been an increase in incidence. Um, And when you're at four times what your goal ought to be, you better believe that you're gonna start having big problems, right? And there's there's a ripple effect. Those people who are getting tested, you know, overall um, are, one of the reasons mortality in Alaska has been pretty low seems to be that the people getting infected are fairly young, um, but it has a ripple effect, right? Those young people do have contact with higher risk people and they do have contact with healthcare workers and they do, and you know, that, that those circles take a while, those ripples take a while. So it might be a matter of weeks before that huge bump starts leading to an increase in hospitalizations and mortality. Um, and that's, you know, it's a long time in the popular consciousness. So people just sort of don't see that link between like, yeah, we're not wearing masks and oh, wait, now people are dying. Uh, it, it's sort of another portal for, for denialism, I think. So you said that young people are kind of like the, um, one of the most affected groups in Alaska. 
I know I've been really frustrated seeing people like other people that I know partying and, you know, do it like going to bars and doing all these things. And I wish that, you know, I could say something to them. So if you were to give a message to these young people in Alaska, what would you say? <laughs> That's a lot of responsibility. Um, I think it's hard, right? I, I think when you haven't seen your friends get sick and when you haven't seen your friends die, it's hard to take this seriously. And yeah, it's not cool to take things seriously. I get it, but I don't have a choice. I have to take this seriously and I am seeing people die. And I am seeing people's grandmothers get intubated. And I am seeing every bit of how serious this is. And I look at the people who sort of should have the most capacity to make adjustments in their lives and to say, hey, I will wear a mask. I'm young, I'm healthy. It doesn't impact me to wear a mask. I don't have breathing problems that are gonna make me feel like I'm suffocating, right? So when I see that group of people being the group that's not taking responsibility and being the group that's driving this pandemic, it is absolutely frustrating. Um, and I, I don't, preaching to people doesn't work. Right? I'm not interested in preaching to people. I would hope that asking for help works. And that's what we're asking for, right? And that's what we've been asking for. And Alaskans have been great about stepping up and it's freaking hard, right? The fatigue is real. The fatigue is totally set in. The isolation and the having to put this damn thing on your face every time you go out like that is real. And having this thing intrude on your day-to-day -day life sucks. And it might seem like an expression of like independence and being young to just like say, screw it, I'm going out there. But if we do that, it's gonna suck a lot more for a lot longer. Um, and, and the people, you know, the sort of 20 to 29 age group who have really been one of the big drivers of this probably will not ever be the group getting critically ill from it. But that doesn't mean that they are not gonna be responsible for deaths. Yeah, it definitely kind of seems like, um you know, young people just kind of need to take charge. And I think it's really important for um, young people to really look out for their community, especially yeah. right now. We'll be right back. Even though all of us at AppMe have been working from home during the pandemic, we're still looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio recordings, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of it is paid. <laughs> so if you're between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska and interested in joining AppMe, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also shoot us an email at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with Dr. Mindlin. How do you approach those who have lost loved ones due to COVID-19? And I understand um, you can't share certain things due to um, doctor-patient confidentiality, but maybe you could paint a general picture of what that looks like. Yeah, um, you know, so my time with people in the ER is limited um, and there's a lot going on, right? When somebody is sick enough to come into the ER, a lot of the time, there's just a lot of things happening at once and I am trying not to intubate someone. Um, I am trying to do everything I can to stabilize them and coordinate a lot of care for them, you know, sort of depending on what their specific complications are and we're doing a lot of testing. Um, one of the things that's been really hard is that we're often not talking with families face to face because we have such visitor restrictions in place. And you kind of, you don't realize how much that takes away initially until you have to talk to family members on the phone and ask them what their parents would like. You know, what would your dad want us to do if he stops breathing or his heart stops? Have you talked to him about, you know, what his end of life wishes would be? Um, and I have flat out had a family member refuse on the phone to tell me what his dad's wishes were because he couldn't bring himself to tell me that his dad wouldn't want to be intubated and kept alive on machines. And those conversations are incredibly difficult in person 
um, under the best of circumstances with all the support in the world and with a social worker and, you know, with, uh, you know, with, with all of the staff, um, those conversations are incredibly challenging and incredibly emotional and trying to do it over the phone. Um, it's near impossible. Um, and I, you know, it's hard to feel like you're not doing a good job. Right. And I think those are the moments when it's really like, Oh man, this is the wrong way to do this. This is substandard. Um, and it's necessary, right? Those restrictions are in place for good reasons, but man, I it just trying to, to navigate those conversations and those decisions with the family and realizing that you're the only person that they're going to get to talk to about this. Um, I really is a struggle. There aren't right words. Um, as with so many things in this, we, there are not right words to do this. There, there's no words that make it, you know, that, that approximate being in the same room with someone. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that lack of human contact really costs you. So I think I'm sort of dodging your question in a sense, but, um, you know, I, I don't know. There, there's not a lot that you can really, there's not a lot of comfort we have to offer. I have found myself saying, I don't know a lot more than I used to, which, you know, I don't know is always part of the picture, especially in, in the emergency department. Um, when we don't know how someone's going to do in the next day or two, we don't know, you know, sort of how they're going to do in the operating room. Um, I don't know is a part of our vocabulary at baseline. Um, but in a situation like this, you really find yourself wishing you can answer questions and having to say like, I don't know, we don't know. Um, that's not, you know, that's not information that we have right now. Um, and you give people your best guess. Um, you, you just try and be honest with people and, and give them your sense of how, how their family member is going to do. And if, you know, unfortunately, if somebody is 80 something years old and has multiple medical problems, um, and is struggling to breathe in the first hour that they've been in the hospital, their outlook over the next week is not great. And you unfortunately find yourself on the phone saying like, yeah, I, I think there is a good chance that your dad is going to die in the next 24 hours. And again, that's just, that's an awful situation. Certainly as a doctor, it's a much worse situation having to be on the receiving end of that much less by phone conversation. Um, so it's hard. I mean, I think those conversations have gotten even harder than they already were. It's definitely, um, you know, it's hard to not be with um, someone you love when they're going, like when they're dying. So I could definitely see how that would be really heartbreaking and really difficult. Yeah. So yeah. you definitely already touched on this, but can you kind of tell me who the people in our community are that are especially vulnerable to this virus and what steps do Alaskan communities need to take to effectively stop the spread? Yeah, so we, you know, one of the things that's out there is, well, you know, the only people who are dying with this are people with, you know, underlying medical conditions, people with comorbidities. And I think what gets lost in that is like, yup, that means diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, right? We're not just talking about the people with like immunocompromised and the people who are on chemotherapy. Those people are being maximally careful already. A Those lot of people have underlying conditions and don't absolutely. realize Absolutely. So the people who are the really obvious ones, like people who are on chemo are not out there for the most part walking around without masks on. Those people haven't left their houses since March. Those people have been in their houses for the last nine months, right? The people who are out there who are high risk are, yeah, people with high blood pressure and diabetes who unfortunately are, are not taking the steps that they could be taking to protect themselves. And Again, I think this is hard to talk about without sounding judgmental of people's choices, right? Um, I get that it is deeply important to a lot of people to go to church. Unfortunately, that is a major driver of spread of this virus is, is communities where church is deeply ingrained and those gatherings have not necessarily stopped. And I'm certainly not an authority on this, right? But if you look at the Pacific Islander community where church is such a, a crucial part of the fabric of that community, it is a huge ask, a huge, huge ask to say, stop going to church. And especially for someone who is not a part of that community to say, stop going to church. And there certainly have been efforts within the Pacific Islander community and really meaningful efforts um, 
and it just I you really need people to take things seriously and buy in um and you know sort of more generally you know when there's not high health literacy in a given community and this is not specific to the pacific islander community but when there's not high health literacy and then you make an ask like that it compounds the problem because then you are making a big ask and people don't necessarily understand the full reason behind that ask or don't believe the full reason behind that ask so i mean when you look at i mean week after week after week after week we get emails from the state um say from the department of health and social services sort of outlining where alaskans are getting COVID, and certainly there are a lot of travel related cases right now one of every 16 people that comes in through the airport is testing positive so absolutely there are travel related cases but nevertheless the major driver right now is social gatherings it is people not adhering to social distancing, mixing with people outside their homes, going to gatherings. And until that changes, you're going to keep seeing the rates increase. I know, um, you know, like this year I have to stay um, at school for like Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, you know, it really sucks. But, you know, I guess in the long run it is the right thing to do. And I know that it's a really difficult, you know, choice to make. But right now it's the only one to make. And I know a lot of other people are having to make that choice as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you, I, I think you literally can't be too careful. I actually have um, a family member who is in college who flew home, um, was very careful, quarantined from his family for two weeks, and out of an abundance of caution, was asymptomatic, got a COVID swab on the last, or like the second or third to last day of his quarantine, tested positive. Dad's a doctor. Dad is now out of the hospital um, because he can't work because he had a close contact. And that is being exceptionally careful. That is quarantining in the house until the quarantine period was basically up having worn a mask and a face shield the whole way home. Sure. Um, you know, and sort of just doing everything possible. And still now, you know, now dad's out of work and was supposed to be working in the hospital wards this week and can't, right? So like it truly, again, like I get that the things we're asking are onerous, like I, they are big asks, but you actually cannot be too careful right now. Um, we are, I don't know, I, I, I think people, you can't say we're at a breaking point too many times because at some point people are like, yeah, yeah, we've been at a breaking point. We get it. From the inside, it looks different. From the inside, it's like, you don't understand that we are like, we are trying to bend as much as possible. But at some point things do break, right? And then we are trying, sure. like, people are trying to think of new solutions on a daily basis um, to increase our capacity by one bed, right? But at some point you do exceed the hospital's ability to, to handle more patients, especially, again, as we talked about, especially when we are down so many staff members. And we yeah, and like you yeah. said, there's been a lot of people that I know that, you know, didn't, weren't symptomatic, and then they went and got tested, like, for whatever reason, and they were like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, and it makes you wonder, it really makes you wonder how many people, like, in our community are sick, and I think that's why, um, you know, like getting regularly tested is really important. I know I made that part of my weekly routine. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're lucky to have the capacity to do that. I will say that I, I think we've been really, really fortunate in Alaska um, that our testing capacity has never become critically limited. Um, we have gotten down a few times to, uh, at Prov specifically, we've sort of gotten down to like a, maybe a two day supply of, of swabs or a one day supply of reagent, but we have not run out. We have always had the capacity by some means or another to test the people we need to test. And that capacity has only increased recently. Prov is, you know, has gotten new machines and is rolling out, literally this week rolled out a new testing model so that all our testing can be done in-house in under 24 hours. So we have sort of the, we have our rapid tests that we, and we don't need to get too much into the nitty gritty of testing unless you want to, but basically we are, are doing a rapid PCR um, that gets done in about one to two hours. Um, and then we also have for our less urgent testing, we have this machine that's the M2000 machine is done in 12 to 24 hours. And so we've been really fortunate that to have the capacity initially and we've been sort of, I, I fortunate's not the right word, but we, so we were fortunate initially um, and also people were really careful um, and people 
did everything they could to keep rates down. And then now it's not good fortune, it's through hard work and through good planning and through incredible efforts, we now have further increased our capacity. So absolutely, I mean, to the extent that it's, it's feasible, um, the more you test, the better, right? And it is interesting to see sort of how the testing has gone um, sort of for screening purposes. Um, you know, if you look at elementary schools that are doing pooled testing, where, you know, if you have a given number of kids all spit in a tube, and then you combine, let's say, the spit from 16 kids, and you run a sample. And if that sample comes, comes back negative, then all 16 of those kids can be presumed negative, because there was not enough virus in any of those samples to turn the whole sample positive. And obviously, there's, there's limitations to that technique. You can't get too many you know, kids spitting in the, same, in the same bucket because eventually you dilute it too much. But that's a way in a setting where there's low prevalence, that's a really effective way to save resources and to be able to screen people. And it's a cool thing, right? It's, and it would never have occurred to me, um, but there's a level of innovation um, that this has spurred that's been really, really cool. Of course, as your prevalence rises, all of a sudden, every sample is gonna come back positive. And then you have to say, okay, well, this sample is positive. We're going to cut it in half and we're going to test these eight samples and these eight samples. And one of those two batches will come back. At some point, as your prevalence gets high enough, everything's going to test positive. And there's no point doing that because it doesn't actually save you anything. But when reagent was really limited, um, or even as reagent continues to be pretty limited, those techniques, those sort of innovations can be really, really valuable. That's really interesting. So... A lot of people are wondering if there is a light at the end of the tunnel with regards to the pandemic. So what hopes do you have for the coronavirus vaccine? High, very high. Um, yes, I, I mean, the answer is yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I think if you look at the data, that's pretty unequivocal. Um, there is light at the end of the tunnel. The problem is the end of the tunnel is still a ways off. And that's for a lot of reasons, right? It takes a while to vaccinate. Um, not everyone is gonna be willing to get vaccinated. And that's, I, I think, one of the one of the biggest reasons that these conversations are important, um, is to sort of address what people's fears are and address what people's uh, misapprehensions are. Of course, no vaccine is 100% effective, and we just don't have enough for everyone yet. And it's going to be a while. And unfortunately, um, despite all of the efforts that were made, there were some missteps. And one of those is that um, the U.S. actually turned down the opportunity, as was reported earlier this week, the U.S. turned down the opportunity to buy another 100 million doses of Pfizer vaccine. So, you know, that was a real missed opportunity. That being said, there were a lot of opportunities that were capitalized upon that have really put us in a, a better position than we would otherwise be. So I'm happy to, whatever vaccine questions you want answered that I can answer, I am more than happy to do it. I will say we're anticipating getting vaccine this week. I am planning on getting vaccinated, getting my first dose this Thursday. So I am like, this is happening. So is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, we've got three vaccine candidates, right? We've got one vaccine that has an emergency use authorization. We've got two more in the pipeline. Um, we're looking at 95% efficacy. Like that is insane. 95% is so high for a vaccine for which we have no reason at this point to expect any significant side effects, sort of long-term adverse effects. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. Now, there are huge ethical questions around how vaccines should be distributed. You know, okay, we're prioritizing healthcare workers in the US, like that's really important infrastructure. We're prioritizing essential workers. We're prioritizing really high risk people. But should the next step be that like every healthy American gets vaccinated or should we be ensuring that every healthcare provider in other countries is getting vaccinated? There is still a limited supply of vaccine. What's the right way to distribute that? What's the the ethical way to distribute that. What's the downstream pain in terms of lost businesses and you know lost healthcare coverage and, and lost everything else that comes from not vaccinating every American? Um, what's our capacity to absorb those harms? These are these are huge systems levels question systems level questions that I can't answer, nor am I really qualified to answer. But that being said, I mean yes, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We are gradually approaching that light but we're not there yet. And that, you know, the worry too is that we will become complacent and we will ease up on the social distancing that is still so critically important, especially in a place like Alaska where the resources are limited. So I know um, during our conversation today, we kind of covered a lot of different stuff. So is there anything else you'd like to add that you feel like we didn't touch up enough on? 
No, I think we talked about the really important stuff. I think, um, you know, like I said earlier, it's hard to not want to jump in there and, and correct all the things that people are saying that are just false, right? Oh, it's just another flu. Oh, it's only the people who are going to die anyway. Oh, it's, you know, every person who dies with COVID-19, we're saying died of COVID-19. And that's, you know, that's a hard one to explain to people that like, you know what, if you have serious health problems um, and you get in a car accident, those serious health problems didn't kill you, right? They might've made it more likely that you would die. Absolutely. But they didn't kill you. The car accident killed you. That's a good example. You know, but so, right. And so people say like, oh, well, you know, everyone who dies of COVID-19 isn't a co or dies with COVID-19 isn't a COVID-19 death. No, that is true. But I think the statistically the number of people that we are mislabeling as COVID-19 deaths is inconsequential. We don't have an, a 250 something thousand excess deaths this year um, by chance, right? And that's not a, even by exaggeration, you could not get to that number. Um, so no, I, I think it's, as I said before, it's frustrating to hear all the stuff that's out there, but I think we've, we've talked a lot about it and all we can do right now, all I can do is sort of try and answer questions and try and as non-judgmentally as possible, try and spread information that's accurate. Yeah, and I really appreciate your time today. So um, you answered all my questions and I feel like I have a bit more information on what it's like to be like on the other side of this right now. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you letting me sort of get all that stuff out there that I feel like needs to be out there. It was a pleasure talking with you. That was At Me Senior Producer Quinn White speaking with Dr. Dandy Mindlin, an ER doctor at the Alaska Medical Center in Anchorage. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music by Kendrick Whiteman. Stay tuned for more stories from Quarantine View. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org where we've included resources for youth during the quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Alaska Press Club, John O'Hara and James McCoy. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Jeremiah Freeman. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together. <laughs>